Welcome to Lost and Rewound on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Alan. Like you, I'm infuriated about the racial injustice and police brutality occurring at this very moment. And because of that, I'm politely bowing out from having my voice heard as much as possible this hour. You will hear, in fact, nary a white voice, and instead, this episode will be righteously taken over by voices of color, all of whom contributed their time and energy to share their lives with us at some point. Um, In the order that they appear this hour, I do want to thank, from the bottom of my heart, Marcus Jade, Tyree Rush, Louis Dorley, a.k.a. Louis Logic, who appeared on LNR early on before our RFB days, and finally, Trumpet Womb. I want to thank them and all of the people of color who have contributed their time, who unfortunately could not make it in a 59-minute broadcast. If we had all the time in the world, I would play it all. You are all in my thoughts. Black lives will always matter. My sister wasn't born until like I was like six. And then it was really just me and my older brother. But then we have like a multitude of just like cousins. Genuinely speaking, like I grew up around them. But when it came to like friends in particular, like trying to make friends, like I just tried to hang out with my older brother and my brother wasn't having that for the most part. And I think this is like just probably like what makes me who I am is that I didn't, I wasn't hanging out with him as much as I wanted to and suddenly just kind of was like left to my own devices. I was the kid that like I was like making mud pies and 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 and, and like running around screaming and and like skateboarding and rollerblading. I probably had like one friend. I was like by myself. I wasn't necessarily a loner, but I was like I was kind of alone. But it you was, were creating in your I head. I was creating. And my, I just, like, you know, my most vivid memories, respectfully, was just, like, you know, being whatever years old, Legos out of proportions and just, like, building all kind of stuff. I didn't trip at all. It was cool. It was, like, one of those situations where it was just, like, you know what? My older brother is gone. He's probably in school, after school, and I'm here chilling. It's your perfect pastor rapper rapper pastor but that's but that's also to say that like it's it's my immediate family i'm the only musically inclined person yeah growing up to say in the most appropriate way it was encouraged 
to play, but it was a, it was another thing. It was never. I don't think it was ever an idea. However, I would have to say that like I did grow up being in the choir. Mm-hmm. So I did. So I did elementary choir. I was in the church choir. It was encouraged a lot outside of the home, and I think that my mom was like really like, yeah, you know, keep singing if it's gonna if it's gonna keep you out of you know trouble, like sing. like that now in indianapolis because there's a lot of houses and you know basement shows and stuff like that but the time that i was growing up it just felt it it didn't even feel like and and i'm probably very nostalgic about this now is that like it didn't even feel like whether it was an option to get a regular job or be a musician it was like balls out walls out i'm about to do this Mm. or or i'm not gonna do it i think the biggest thing was that like even now i'm just really committed to uh, music as this thing that builds community hmm. and i'm very fortunate to like be in the diy scene in bushwick and so there's this healthy codependency of just people wanting to come together that need to come together that need that type of community and in indianapolis i fell into that community i fell in that community very early when i found a guitar so it was like my first um shows were diy punk shows in indianapolis 14, 15 years old, sneaking into like these houses with like, you know, 21, 25 year old punks. And it's just like me, my black ass, you know, (laughs) (laughs) excuse me, excuse the language, but it was just like me. I'm walking in there with like one or two other friends and I'm curious and I'm exposed to this world. And the biggest thing that I saw that like still is like in my mind today is that you know, everybody just came together. It wasn't about race. It wasn't about uh, gender. It wasn't about income. It, w- it wasn't about college degree. It was just about the music. Say, Mary, 
school i did track i did football i did basketball and and i was on the winning teams but at the end of the day i just i just didn't blend in with them and so when i found the diy scene it didn't matter whether it was punk rock or hip-hop or you know agro punk or agro rap or stuff like that it was just this community of people that like you know loving and you know one of the biggest things that i guess i'm a dork for is that like you know these places always have food community and and people of just like wanting to wanting to just be there almost like beyond the music but really just be there because you know this it's almost like a being in that type of community is is almost like a selfless act especially if you're like punk rock or hardcore like you know you're throwing yourself into a mosh pit all the time and it's just like whether you're just sitting there or dancing around it's kind of a selfless act to give all this energy, all this attention to like this crowd, this this band. And I, I felt that. I felt that I felt that in the being on stage with people, but I also feel it being off stage when I'm seeing like a friend of mine performing is that I'm giving them, you know, my energy and they're feeding off of it and they're doing a great job. 
and I couldn't find that anywhere else in Indianapolis.
they lost your sentimental value But for love, but for love But for love I'll just restore how you Knock me off my feet I've been to this place once before the state of mind and the state of mind, not knowing anything this place had in store for me. I escaped this place going northeast on the prairie, away from another straightforward, nowhere-going city. The townies northeast call this place big and never peaked outside. I found it as it was, small and wobbly, deciding to put it in my back pocket. I learned from what it had become, from its Indiana heritage of blood and pilgrim. Forager from afar, calling this home, Amish settling, Kentucky Dutch backwoods, and undercover abolitionist, Fort Wayne. A spy's run from Ohio and Michigan, where three rivers ride and converge, having overheard while I was drinking this place is an Indian burial ground with impenetrable values set in churches on every corner. For the native and settlers who resided here before, to me it became a test to see how the social circles overlapped and tangled and why others festered and rooted and I sinking myself in. The innocent roamed freely about as the quaint feeling could cast over me, walking under the pale aura of light on the Wells Street Bridge, looking down the St. Mary, asking myself often, is it time for me to go? All the while across, the mixing and mingling with the townies, the offbeat hipsters and brats alike, punk an edged life intertwined at a cafe, all awaiting their fix of coffee, dripping at their mouths and steaming, bellowing hookahs, brandishing their words in favor of their best friends, all waiting to play. A place we all used to meet once with friends of friends, content with feeling that this is it. Beyond me, in my naive ways, I learned how different we were. For they dwelled in their Decatur, New Haven, and Huntington homes, the West Central lofts, their private education, unable to swallow their own privilege. They're pulled away from their father's hands, their mother's tradition, in a cry of rebellion. However, they still clung on tightly to the bucks with their thumbs, down on South Calhoun, where differences are shunned and embraced, outlaws and vagabonds running with disparity chipped in them, staying close to their own kin and kind. I found myself with all of them, though, in wild nights, blurred with intoxication, running through cornfields, drunk out of our minds, laying awake in a pool of spilled liquor and banjos, hippies and graybill, 
wannabe wifed up homebodies in Leo, staying there in their St. Joe's place. White girls using me to broaden their horizons. I ran with it. All too much has gone away from it all, away into the abyss. The despairs of shadows covered us and the oil burned out. Go along the trail just like the rest of them, surrounded by their own knowing and their town that saved itself. I have realized that all American is not something to admire. Looking upon a much wider eye to even those and up and left, but remain loyal to their Indiana home. I came and stayed for many a night and kept my promise to not stay any longer, to roll away the mommy, to roll away from the churches and away from the land protecting it. I too, after learning a hard truth that this place, like many there, will stay and remain the same. Those who stay knowing and willingly for their good homes and security and in comfort of knowing who they are, for I did not know enough, but knew one thing, that this place is that, nothing special, nothing unique, all no different from the rest. did speak at a graduation it was like eighth grade though i spoke at a my high school graduation too but it was like a welcome which is just like a, a silly thing to give anyone to do you welcome the people who are coming to see their children graduate to the school to watch their kids it's like they yeah. know why they're here i don't i don't understand i think they just wanted someone diverse on the stage and so that was what i did the welcome uh <laughs> but in the eighth grade speech um, I said something that I thought was profound when I was 13, I guess. Um, it was like, you can say whatever you want, but is saying what you want going to get you what you want? I think we don't really talk to hear ourselves speak. I mean, we do, but ideally when you say things, you want specific results to happen. Prolocutionary effect. You have to curve your speaking and the way that you speak to get the results that you want out of people. So I was teaching them how to be manipulators. Yeah, that was my goal. That transition from like high school to college, you're all like kind of changing and nobody knows what they want to do. Um, and I had the unique experience of going to a boarding school for high school. So my high school experience, I would compare to going to like a small liberal arts college. So right. much so that when I got to college, I felt like you need to have a job and you need to be paying a mortgage. Like, what are you doing? What are you, wh why are you wasting time like going to classes? Um, <laughs> So I was being a musician, but it's so hard trying to find a band, trying to get booked for shows, writing, getting the studio time and like, you know, really trying to turn it into a business and building like a fan base. I was listening to like rap and R&B, of course. And I think that that's like when you looked at me, you thought R&B singer, rapper. But I grew up listening to like Of Montreal and Weezer and I loved like Kevin Barnes and um, Rivers Cuomo, the way that they wrote. And I wanted to kind of be this Lenny Kravitz, Beck type of like indie alt rocker writing music like that and trying to make it. And nobody was listening to it. 
and nobody was really trying to put it on their open mics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was like, you need a new career. A lot of my childhood was like me trying to make sense of the very adult things that was happening in our world through like creativity and it being shut down by the powers that be. I'm one of six. I'm a middle child. I grew up in a house where if you were reading a book, it did not matter what the book was. You're reading, so it's good. So like I was reading like a lot of Brett Easton Ellis as like a fucking eight year old. And my parents were just like, American Psycho. Yeah, like fine. <laughs> sure. Yeah, the rules of attraction. Go, go for it. Keep reading. And yes, yeah, so I was just like, so people rape each other. And sometimes like you're into that. And so, yeah, like Coke is a thing that we all do. So, yeah, I grew up very fast in that regard because I was just being fed the literature way too early. Funnily enough, my older brother and sister, we were in a gospel group together. So we would like sing every Sunday and like write songs and practice and perform. And it got to the point where, like, I would leave school on Friday, like elementary school, and we would go drive to, like, Mississippi or Alabama and, like, do these shows and then, like, come back and have to be in school on Monday. But, like, they were constantly practicing. We had to work together to, like, write songs and create, like, a performance. So they taught me a lot about, like, singing and showmanship and, I guess, breath control. so very casually put together like yeah. i was applying to college but it didn't really occur to me that like people were actually very skilled musicians and putting together like hardcore tracks i just thought i had to show that i had the potential to be that and that i would get that there I kind of knew I wanted to be like an on-air personality or like be in that television space. And there were opportunities to do other things in like production, like on shows, but I was still in school and my parents were very big on like, like my dad told me all my life, all I want you to do is graduate college and whatever you do after that, I don't give a fuck. My dad drove an 18 wheeler truck and my mom was a travel agent. I started working at CNN because in addition, like it was easier to do while being in school versus like doing these 16 hour days on shoots other places and trying to go to class or whatever. Um, so I was working at CNN and doing like local news stuff and building up my resume and doing like interviews and stuff. The news is like really dark and you don't really get to talk about the things that you want or like report in the ways that you do. So I was getting really depressed and I decided to do stand up as a way to kind of have this like fun thing in my life that was not really professional but it was helping me like cope with the amount of shit that I was doing on the news side. So when I started doing stand up, I told my parents that I was going to do it. And they were like, don't talk about us. So naturally, my first jokes were about my parents, but they were really great. They came to open mics and they like they paid and bought two drinks 
my first maybe 10 shows in Atlanta, it was like like the random people who showed up and 10 to 15 members of my family. Like in the, my grandma came once and sat in the front row. I talked about like dick pics. My 80 year old grandma's just sitting front row, like laughing at something that I know she would never, she would never laugh at. Growing up, I saw like Red Fox and Richard Pryor, like vinyls in my grandma's like closet. So I know that she had a sense of humor. They're trying to make you into a better version of the kids that they fucked up. It's like they looked at everything they did wrong with their actual children. Are like, I have a chance to make sure you come out okay. Grab the mic and drop bombs. Feel on my boots, step to my roots. Black is dominant. That's enough proof. Separation of integration. Strong foundation. Nubian nation. Microphone is blessed with the bonus. Pray, give thanks, and help the homeless. Use the mind. The creator. I had cut my teeth learning to freestyle from my first black friend on Long Island. This kid, Charlie Tucker. I have no idea where he is now. He was kind of. Um, a tough luck kid whose mom was like a Korean prostitute that was brought here and put on drugs right away so that she wow. would have to stay, you know, in servitude to keep her habit going. And his dad was a black soldier in Korea who was like stationed there. And she became pregnant with this guy's child, never had a relationship with him or anything. And my friend Charlie used to like tie his mom's arm off so she could shoot up and sit when he was little. He had a really screwed up life. Uh, but he was like the first black friend I made. I didn't have any black friends growing up, even though I'm half black myself, because I grew up in a super Italian suburb in Long Island. And when I made my first black friend, it was just a pure coincidence that he, in addition to being a skateboarder, was a rapper. And he kept nudging me to freestyle with him because he was lonely. You can't just freestyle by yourself <laughs> all day. It makes you seem like a dick. And he convinced me to write a rhyme and record it. And then he played it back for me, and I heard my own recorded voice for the first time. It sounded horrible. I sounded like exactly what I was, like a super suburban white guy, which, you know, brown skin aside, I I was. And so I didn't know anything about what was going to happen in the future of rap, that like that was going to become okay. I was like, this isn't for me. That's what I learned when you hit play on the tape back. I'm not a rapper. And from 17 till almost 19 I didn't rap and then when I got to college I was I was a pro skateboarder and I tried to make friends in the Penn State black community which was pretty small um there was 35,000 kids there and 3,000 of them were black people and for me like I was really excited to finally meet some other black people and like you know make friends and just get over all the weird race problems I had growing up being the only black guy in the neighborhood. Another average day in Metropolis, USA. No Superman to blow away, my skies are gray. Cause every time I dig into my pockets, it's a telltale story. My banks are juiced back to the laboratory. To figure on a plan to sustain for self. Or meditate on the future of accumulating wealth. No simple answers cause dollars keep making exits. My pride hangs low, still I wear it like a pendant. Maybe it's me with my fucked up priority. It's trying me, I don't remember laughing in sobriety. The system's buying me, so I invest in polo and Gore-Tex. CD players hooked up with double cassette decks. More checks bounce and empty accounts. No money for food, but two bones for a 40 ounce. Imagine every fourth is built on daydreams. A legend in my own mind, no more minimum wage jobs to make cream. Cash means populate my hometown. Refer to Suffolk County Popo if you're looking for the lowdown. Middle class, my state's reputed. Couch potatoes, not a drop of motivation. Mad rules, so fun to stay low. No halos, no angels, just everyday routines. In the game of life, I avoid swamps and keep my boots clean. Pay tribute to my parents for providing me with guidance. I was going to great lengths to like black up my sound 
mm. uh, because I thought that's what you had to do because there was no precedent for anything otherwise. Even the white rappers that were out there, were, and there were very few at that time. There was really no precedent for like a white guy who just sounded like a white guy. The ones that did exist would do their best. Like this is what black people sound like when they rap and talk. Mm-hmm. And and so that's what I did. And it took me a long time to cultivate a dialect that sounded convincing. And um, over the course of my college years, I learned, you know, my own kind of ebonics, I guess you would say. And I became an expert in you know what social scientists call code switching. And I had like one way of speaking when I was around my white friends and my family and another way for around my black friends. And I, that's really common, actually. Mm. Um, you see it in other communities, in, in the, the gay community. And, and so I, I think that my rap voice early on, and, and even to this day, like it still has some remnant of it, was a product of me learning to code switch um, and to talk like what I thought black people talked like. And... Ultimately, what ended up happening is over the years, I got older and uh, more mature, and I, at some point, realized that you don't have to be a certain way to be a black guy. You either are or you aren't, and so in my case, I, I get to be one, whether or not I talk, dress, act, or whatever, like people think black people act like, right. you know, and that's why they made stuff like Afropunk Festival, because they had to, to acknowledge the fact that not everybody fits into what you get shown in movies on TV I was trying to learn to code switch and to, to speak in ebonics and dress the part and like be convincing to go unnoticed. Um, and people would catch me. You know, I had, I had a crush on this like really cute Dominican girl from Brooklyn. Um, and there, there weren't a lot of people from like real cities at Penn State, but there were a few. And so if you were from Brooklyn, like people were like, damn, you're like real deal. Uh, and I had a crush on this girl, Danya, and she was a Dominican chick with blue eyes. Um, and she was really cutesy, but not like, you know, like a show pony. She was cutesy. But um, she she sussed me out, man. Like, she could tell that I wasn't real. Um, and she, she called me out on it. She was like, Louis, you try too hard. Like, you, you're not pulling it off either. You know, and it was a humiliating moment for me. And I look back on that stuff, and... And I'm actually kind of grateful for that stuff now because it is part of what uh, sent me down the path that I, I went on. And eventually I did get good enough to trick people and nobody noticed. You know, I could fit in with any street kid and no, people did not know the difference. Um, but I think I, I came to realize that that wasn't helping me to formulate like a positive identity as like a black guy. And so when I started to succeed as an indie rapper that did more for me than like this weird act and persona that i had cultivated you know like just getting some recognition as a rapper and making some money and stuff like that like and seeing my career legitimized did more for me um than pulling off a convincing act as like what i thought a street 
inner city black guy was supposed to be like as if there were none of them who were like punk rock guys didn't talk like what you think black people talk like because you're watching too much tv i'm sure there were plenty of those guys but i didn't know that back then and so i ended up having this really clumsy period that you know once i made it through the clouds or whatever like i i found myself and was like you can be the suburban dork that you are and still like count as like a black guy and and everything was better after that um i look back on those stories those humiliating little moments and and i like them and and one of them that happened during that time period was the first time that i ever i ever rapped live Connects the heads like bank robbers stocking. Like I'm a senior citizen as much as I've been rocking. Hell's knocking like cops in, bill collectors. A bad dream, fuck a vaccine, it's still infectious when it finds you. It's like HIV times two. No cure for the shit like the summertime blues. I'm due to battle bouncing with a feather cap, nigga. Hope my pages be the gold like a treasure map is one. For a clever rap, two for my duo. Fucking black ops, excuse the French like a Pujo. Pushing through yo, lane and cutting niggas off like the circulation of your legs in a figure four. Manifest a liquor store of intoxicants. Staggering a solid crew to split them like the continents. Divide and conquer dominant. Rap essential qualities for death. Work better than riddling to ease the stress. Happy as New Yorkers at a pizza fest. When I watch an empty wallow in his meagerness, then I make it known the Eladon got flows. This dude, DJ St. B, was making this mixtape, and he was like, I want you to do like the intro to the tape, and I'm going to record an original verse of yours, um, and then this is going to go all over State College, like all over town. And I was so nervous about it, and I wrote this verse, and I came over to his place, and I recorded it on a little four-track, and he played it back for me, and I was like, wow, like that sounds real. It sounds like a real rapper. Like, and it was one of the first recordings I had had where I was like, damn, I sound real. I sound like a real rapper. Um, I had finally cultivated, you know, the voice and the dialect and whatever. He made his mixtape and the fucking thing caught on like crazy. Like everybody around town was listening to it. It was wild. Um, and he kept having to go back to Kinko's and like make more and more. And I mean, he, he sold some, he gave a lot of them away, but it became like a thing. And I wouldn't say that people necessarily knew me because of it. Or, you know, they recognized my little poem in shingle verse. But he got this DJ gig at Crowbar, uh, formerly known as Tattoos. And um, he was like, do you want to do the poem in shingle live? And I was like, you mean like in front of people? <laughs> and he was like, yeah. Like, I'll pull you up to the DJ booth and give you a mic and you can rap it live in front of the club. And I was like, yes. But I didn't even think about how scary it was going to be or whatever. So I agreed to do it. And um, in a side story, uh, part of my clumsiness in trying to convince people that I was like an urban black guy and like cultivating the dialect and the dress and everything, and like a few people were able to like spot me, you know. What I, were you wearing? I was I was literally wearing like gigantic Jabot jeans, uh, Timberland hiking boots, uh, Tommy Hilfiger hockey jersey, a backwards like army cap, dreadlocks. Gold fronts. That was my costume. You wore the gold fronts to the show? Oh yeah, man, definitely. All right, I guess. Um, Why not? Go all. Actually, in. Actually, I think I was wearing a polo hockey jersey. But you, but show. you went all in. Oh yeah. Here's what ended up happening. There was this dude, who is also from Long Island, 
but told everybody he was from Brooklyn. His name was Steve Stiles. <laughs> he was a fucking asshole and a bully. And he looked like he was a 35-year-old man, even though he was like 21 or you know, whatever. And I was like 19 or something. And I was super, super skinny. I was like 120 pounds. and st- Like, I looked ridiculous, man. And this dude was like a grown-ass man with like biceps and shit. <laughs> um, he had a baby with like some white chick that he got <laughs> pregnant. And... Um, he told everybody that he was Jamaican and that he was from Brooklyn, but he was definitely from Long Island. And maybe his family was West Indian, but he was not from Jamaica. And he would put on like a, he was like code switching the way I was, yeah. but with a Jamaican he accent. Had a fake patois. Yeah. Oh, it was bad too. It sucked. Um, <laughs> but the dude had tons of polo and, and that was like a really big thing at that time period. You had to get lots of polo or lots of hill figure or nautica. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, my family was, you know, like, uh, was a blue collar family but like very comfortably middle class and so they could afford to buy me shit like that and i i had um big refunds because i had a full scholarship so my parents would would pay for a housing up front and then they would get this big refund back and um i I would keep it and so they'd give me a check like every semester for like three thousand dollars and i would just go hog wild buying like polo and hilfiger and stuff and my mom, for some reason, just let me do that. I wonder if my dad even knows. I had an impressive collection of polo and Hilfiger and all that stuff. And uh, there were like maybe three guys on campus who were really well known for their impressive collections of those kind of clothes. And Steve Styles was one of them. And uh, he hated me because he didn't like it that I also had a lot of nice polo, but I was so fake because I, I, I couldn't pull off my like, ebonics code switching thing. So I would get caught. Test my libido for rhyming crookedness. Yo, I'm hooked to this like strong arm stretch to Barbito. I took a diss and turned it into royal props. Niggas shitted on the mic like toilet spots. Taking shots to the dome like naked wops. You used to bone, so when your crew come home, you still be whack. Front that filthy act and represent like Philly blacks. My mountains areas come out with various flows to curl your toes and still react. My verses con juice from Vietnam troops with artillery. You bargain in for arms and sold the farm to infertility. Aside from villainy, to still epitomizing. Beefing like the sun splits horizon. Victimizing weak MCs like signs reading dicks for riding. Get the bobbin with your boys, the men are poisoning them like a steady dose of arsenic. I went into a JCPenney's on my break because I, I worked at the Gap and I was in the mall and I went into a JCPenney's and there was this smoking hot, light skinned black chick who was obviously like me. She was like a mutt. Um, her name was Amy and I had a, I instantly had a crush on her. I was like, whoa, hot. And I don't know what happened that day. I felt super brave. I started talking to her and I got her number and I ended up dating her for a little while. And I found out that she had a kid and I was like freaked out by that because she was like 20 and you know, and she had a baby. Then I found out that Steve was her ex-boyfriend. Um, and she lived in the, uh, the grad student housing because she had a baby. Um, they let her, even though she was undergrad, have a mm. grad student grad student like little apartment and it had a basement underneath it and steve had left a bunch of his stuff like baby stuff from his daughter under there um even though they had been broken up for a while they would fight all the time and he would come over there like trying to get his stuff or whatever and i didn't know this 
but she was saying really nasty stuff to him to try to hurt his feelings. Maybe it wasn't even true, but she'd be like, you're bad in bed. Lewis is better in bed than you. And like tease him. And I didn't know all that stuff was happening. So there's like weeks leading up to me rapping live for the first time. And the night of it comes up and before the show, I was like, I had seen some really big and amazing shows. And so like I learned by seeing those shows, you got to do crowd participation. You got to yell something and then they got to yell it. But I'm not confident. Like, no one's going to say the thing that I tell them to say. Like, how can I get them to do it? And I was I was smart. You know, I was a sociology and psychology major. And I was like, I'll just use what I've learned to get them to go with me. Kids love to curse. But why are they just going to say what I tell them to say? And I was like, I know what I'll do. I'll make it so that they're cursing at me. And I, I bit red man's little skits that he would have on his album where he would have hurricane g saying fuck you red man and he would say mother fuck you back to her and man it worked like a charm man i had that entire place screaming fuck you lou and then i yelled mother fuck you and we kept doing it and then i did the poor man's jingle and it went over so well like i i didn't screw up i didn't forget the words or anything this is the first time i ever rapped live in front of anybody through a microphone and I gave the mic back to St. B and he was like, wow, man, you were amazing. <laughs> and he hugged me and I turned around and I walked out of the DJ booth and as soon as I looked up, Steve Styles right in my face. Much bigger, much more developed and manly than I, much blacker. And he was like bumping me with his chest and cursing at me and telling me that he was going to kill me and that he had killed before. And I was so intimidated by him because his, his city black guy act was on point not as jamaican act necessarily <laughs> but his like urban brooklyn black guy thing was very convincing he was like yeah motherfuck you lou motherfuck you and i was like what do you want and he was like i'll fucking body you man you think i haven't done it before i killed the motherfucker i'll kill you and i was i was shitting dude and he was like i'm gonna kill you you talking shit about me blah blah, blah. And I, man i wouldn't even say the kid's fucking name i was so afraid of him he finished talking shit to me and he was like you're a little bitch and everyone here knows it and like people started to look and like watch and he was like he's a bitch you see he's a little bitch he knows he's a bitch you bitch right you're a bitch okay go home bitch and I had to like turn around and walk away because I was so fucking afraid of the kid um, so I I sucked it up and I, I, I went home and told my friends and they were like man fuck that guy and my one friend our son Pretty sure I was like, Rand, will you please kill that guy for me? But Rand is like a gentle giant. He's like 6'5", and like just a huge dude. His hands are so big. like They, they look like alien hands. They're insane. <laughs> but he, he was like a comic book nerd. He wasn't going to do anything. And Everybody just tried to reassure me instead of beating Steve up for me, which is what I really wanted to happen. Um, now I kind of wish I would run into that dude because I'm in Brooklyn and I live here. And yeah. I'm not a little kid anymore. And I wouldn't try to fight him, but I would be like... You're an asshole, dude. Like, you tormented me for no fucking reason. Dude, it's just like in Fight Club when, when they're going yeah. to the, the meetings and, and pretending like they're both tourists. You know, he's like, her lie reflected my lie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it, it's true. That, that's what happens. You catch each other yeah. faking. Arrest the president. But a fun fact I learned, apparently, like, because I finally, like, got stopped by cool cops and they told me what was up. And, like, apparently the MTA pays people to walk around 
looking for people playing with amplification and my keyboard is considered amplification so like they they call the cops every time <laughs> and they, the cop was just suggesting like different places to play where they, that's less likely to happen but isn't that silly like your, your ticket's paying for that it's very annoying because it's uh, i get more money on the platform but that's where they buy you showing different instruments and like we got we got to pick our instruments and i think like he had like to pick a backup one and my mom was like come on why not like the flute or something like lame like that and i was like no mom <laughs> <laughs> i thought it was cool and i picked the trumpet i might have tried to put drums as my backup my mom was like no whatever trumpet happened i just remember like then after that day like we got to actually physically try the instruments on another day and i just remember him giving me the trumpet and i just like like made some really crappy sound and I remember like just loving it from the first notes. Do you come from a musical family? No, not really. My mom played some violin back in the day. My sister played saxophone for like I want to say a year or two or or maybe a little bit longer than that, like four maybe. Anyone else like in your more like distant family at all? Not that I'm aware of. I think my mom might have said I had a relative that was, but I don't really remember. Like nobody, it's not like I grew up in like Hell, group of the church, like, no, no, yeah. <laughs> I don't got that backstory. <laughs> I did this, like, National Symphony Youth Orchestra Fellowship thing. Which, yeah. Like, you auditioned for it, and then, like, they set you up with, like, a, a private teacher from the orchestra, and you got to do all these, like, events with them, and... Like, they taught us, like, composition and all this really, really cool stuff. I guess I was probably, like, I want to say 15 or 16, maybe. While I always knew I was going to be a professional musician, I didn't really know how, because as much as I love classical music, like, all the things I did, at the end of the day, I knew me sitting in the back of the orchestra wasn't going to be the thing. I would listen to a lot of different genres of music, and I remember, like, I went to Spain and, like, kind of saw some different kinds of music, I guess, around that age you were talking about. And yeah, I don't know how the thought process came about to start like rock banding, but it was a while before I realized I really want to like, I have to have my own statements and make my own songs. This was, uh, I had actually attempted to move up to New York, I guess in 2009 or 2010, and I kind of just ran out of money and went back home to my parents' house, and so I recorded this in their basement. I was on an old computer, and I had, like, just Sony Acid and, like, a Blue Snowball mic.
that was a very depressing time of my life, honestly. And I think in that in that age, just like dealing with the understanding of how quickly relationships move and just kind of learning how to let go and understanding the difference between real friends and people that kind of just think you're cool and just kind of want to drink with you and just kind of like that age learning that. And that was like, like I said, I moved back to my parents' house. It was an extremely hard time in my life. Um, yeah, music always goes out. Can it be she love every part of me Whether hot or cold or any wind blow This is unexpected, it's changed my perspective Of the possibilities for this life I lead I want a spring and a summer Fall and a winter with you, with you, you, with you Spend my revolutions round the sun With you, with you, you, with you Come on, baby, we can take the changes. Won't you spend your seasons with me? She works my mind in a spirit's divine. Her beauty is blind and her love stays shining. She got me singing this song that I never thought any woman would want from me. I want a spring and a summer, fall and a winter with you, with you, you, with you. Spend my revolutions round the sun with you, with you, you, with you. Come on, baby, we can take the changes. Won't you spend your seasons with me? Everything you need Journey through the seasons with me I hope to be everything you need Journey through the seasons with me Said I hope to be everything you need Journey through the seasons with me yeah. I hope to be, hope to be Thank you so much for listening. This is Lost and Rewound, Radio Free Brooklyn.